This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica, and I'm really glad you're here today. My guest today is Rita Sornan. She's the president and CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, the only public nonprofit charity in the United States that is focused exclusively on foster care adoption. And yes, that is the Dave Thomas of the Wendy's restaurant. The guy who created your Frosty was doing a lot more than that behind the scenes. And as you'll hear, he helped change the face of foster care advocacy in this country. Rita has been working for the foundation since 2001 and on behalf of abused, neglected, and vulnerable children in the child welfare system for her entire career. Today, she talks with me about dispelling a few myths about foster care that are out there, but also about how the foundation with their Wendy's Wonderful Kids program has actually been able to significantly increase the number of adoptions of older children. This is huge. Children who age out of the foster care system without families are extremely vulnerable to everything from homelessness to substance abuse to suicide. This work matters so much, you guys. November is National Adoption Month, and while I, of course, support adoption of every kind, I'm particularly drawn to and concerned with foster care adoption, especially those older kids, which, by the way, an older kid is really defined as a child nine years old or older. It's why I read, write, and advocate for it. It's why I believe so much in mentoring vulnerable kids, and it's why someday I hope to foster or adopt an older child. And even if you can't foster, please listen in to all the ways you can contribute. We need everyone in this fight. I don't think there's any more important work being done. Enjoy this conversation with Rita Sornan. All right, Rita, thank you so much for joining the Worth Your Time podcast today. I'm so excited to talk with you. Um, uh, Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited as well. Yeah. um, So I would love to just get started by having you introduce yourself a little bit. Tell us who are you and who are the important people in your life and the important things in your life? Ah, well, um, you know, right now I serve as president and CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. It's a national nonprofit public charity that's dedicated to moving children out of foster care and into adoptive homes. And this is a, a really important cause to me. My professional career has been dedicated to advocating for vulnerable children, and particularly those who have been abused or neglected. So I take this notion of um, um, taking care of children and vulnerable families seriously. And um, as a result, I, I quite adore the family that I have, two amazing daughters who are grown um, and are off on their own, but have been part of this journey with me um, as I've um, worked in, in a number of organizations. So um, uh, making sure that um, you know they get everything that they need while we help children across the nation, and they've both become incredible advocates themselves. Do they also work um, within the same industry? 
They don't. Um, my oldest daughter is a physical therapist, and, but she has worked um, uh, early in her career. She worked with children who had spinal cord injuries, so very dedicated to children and, and has done a number of volunteer efforts with uh, children and families. And my youngest daughter is an artist and an advocate and uh, has uh, worked on behalf of social justice issues and particularly those that uh, impact children and families. So, um, uh, you know, they, they weave in and out of um, that broader conversation of social justice, but not specifically in child welfare. Well, I think that's a great example of how, you know, everyone's not going to work, you know, inside of child welfare, but there's always a place for people to play a part in that no matter what they're doing outside of it. So I think that's a, a great example of that. And I want to talk about that a little more later about how people can get involved. But I would love to um, hear more about your professional background. I know you've been with the Dave Thomas Foundation for quite some time. Um, how did you get there? What were you doing prior to that? Yeah, um, it's a great question. And, and I think, as I think back, how did I get into this business? The reality is, uh, although I had a, a complicated childhood, we were safe and I had a home and, and, a, and an intact family, there were issues of substance abuse and depression. And, and but, but we stayed together and, and worked it out. But so I wonder often, you know, what got me into this. And I think part of it is uh, the human that I am, I just came out kicking and screaming. <laughs> That's not fair when it came to issues of um, children not being treated fairly, of not having a voice. Um, I was always the one that someone would say, oh, you'll feel different when you're older. The reality is I think I think the same way now as I did when I was eight or nine or 10, um, particularly when it comes to children. I was the one that at, at 13 was trying to figure out how to send money across the, um, the globe when you saw those uh, commercials on TV about helping children. So that's just part of who I am. But I started out, quite honestly, on a different path. But um, when my oldest daughter was just an infant, um, there had uh, been a horrible case here in Columbus, Ohio, about an infant that was abused and then subsequently died. And I think I was particularly attuned to that conversation and immediately dropped what I was doing and began to volunteer with a local organization that focused on child abuse prevention was part of that National Committee to Prevent Child Abuse. And that really got me into learning about what are the dynamics? Why do families fall into issues of, of uh, harm for their children? And, and, you know, the vast majority of parents don't set out to harm their children. What are those dynamics? Um, and from there, um, after about a decade there, I started out as a volunteer and then moved into a, a full-time staff position. Um, I was recruited to take charge of the local court-appointed special advocate CASA program, which is an organization that trains community volunteers to advocate for the best interest of children. Once they're involved, so they've been abused and neglected, now they're involved in the court system. How do we make sure those children have a voice in the court system? And, and ran that program for about a decade. Um, so I had learned a great deal in, in, a, in, a, in a couple of decades about the background of families, the dynamics of abuse and neglect, then learned quite a bit about the judicial system and the child welfare system and how do we treat children when they are, um, through no fault of their own, moving into these very complex systems. And how do we support families to get children back home where they belong? While I was there, um, and the opportunity to come to the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption presented itself. And so I thought about it and realized that if I um, was so honored to be chosen for this position, that it really became a bit of a full circle professionally for me in child welfare, from child abuse prevention um, to 
intervention with the CASA program and now with the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. How do we serve these children most effectively when our prevention efforts have failed, our intervention efforts have essentially caused them to be homeless? They've been freed for adoption. They're simply waiting for families. So it was not an intentional journey at the front end, but it became one of those that I think I grew with the journey as as I learned more and, and developed those relationships and, and extended my reach. And it's been an incredible journey. Yeah, I was going to say, I think once you sort of have a personal experience or something like that with um, a child that's been abused or neglected, you really can't turn a blind eye. You can't ignore it anymore. And one of the reasons that I'm so invested in this is my husband grew up as a, an abused and neglected child. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I have gone through a lot of the trauma with him, like processing that and dealing with the, um, the effects of that. And as a result, like we've both become very passionate about um, helping kids and making sure that kids have what they need, mentorship, and also advocating for foster care and adoption. Um, I also wanted to ask you, you know, sometimes you hear when you work professionally with inside something you're passionate about, sometimes you can become, it can become almost harder to stay as passionate about it. Have you Hmm. had any kind of experience where like the professional life kind of takes away, I guess, from why you started? It's a great question. You know, I think what it does is you have to learn at times to compartmentalize um, um, just because it, it, it is an overwhelming conversation and you begin to look at all families and wonder, you know, my kids used to come home from school and share something about what was going on with one of their friends and I might, my red flag meter would go up and, and I would say, well, do you think there's any issues of abuse in this family? And my kids would look at me and roll their eyes and it's like, mom, not everybody <laughs> abuses their children. Yeah. So it's learning to separate and yet stay attuned to it. And quite honestly, the more I'm into this, the more that I do, the longer I've done this, quite honestly, the more passionate I am. My frustrations are saved for, I think, policies and um, practices that don't move fast enough to take care of our children and families. But um, I, I think it's it's a matter of taking care of yourself when you realize that there are s- such injustices in this world and not giving up and not simply throwing up your hands and saying, there's too much. We couldn't possibly solve this issue, never mind in the United States, but on a global basis, how are we going to deal with the number of orphans and, and families who are violent and families that suffer from substance abuse or families with food and housing and security. How are we going to do this? And we have to step back and say, well, we can do it in our community. We can do it in our state. We can do it in our country. And we can, we can, we can move globally as well. Well, speaking of policies, what can you identify maybe some policies that you see that are working well? And, um, and what is not, what is something that you'd like to see happen policy-wise that hasn't, hasn't happened? Yeah, there was recent federal legislation that really turned, I think, financing, federal financing, which is just another whole complex conversation for child welfare, but really began to turn around our thinking and saying, you know, we have to put resources into prevention. And typically, the majority of resources for child welfare, appropriately so, and there's never enough, have been at how do we support foster care? How do we support movement toward adoption? Um, And there 
are incentives and disincentives sometimes built into those. But the Family First Act of just a, about a, a couple of years ago said that this country would begin to spend some dollars on prevention and look at evidence-based practices in prevention. And also, let's not just, in this country, for older youth in particular, which is where the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption has a particular passion, um, we can't just throw children into group homes, into congregate care, because we don't know what to do with them, because we believe they're unadoptable. And that federal legislation said, you know, we have to start putting some restrictions on who we put into group care, that they, there has to be a therapeutic need in order to get continued funding for those children. We can't just use it as a repository for children that we don't know what to do with. So I think those are some good shifts that have been happening recently. Um, I think we still, though, put sometimes um, um, throw and, and in child welfare, the policies, I think, tend to tend to um, surround how we spend our money. And, and we do still tend to throw perhaps too much money on um, practices that don't work for, again, this target population of children for whom we care the most, older youth, children and sibling groups, children with special needs, children who've been in care for so long that they give up on themselves and push against any attempts at permanency. We need to really figure out how we can shift and realign resources, not to allow a child to age out of care, but to find out how we can find permanency for those children. Now, you, so talking, speaking of prevention, what, what is prevention look, what does prevention look like? You know, it, it depends on, on where families are, but certainly providing resources, access to, to resources for families who may be, you know, so many children, the majority of children who come into the child welfare system come into the care because they've been neglected. And that neglect can be everything from they don't have safe housing or enough food to they're not going to school regularly. Um, they're not being cared for in a way that um, allows them a safe and thriving life. And frequently it's because the families are perhaps um, engaged in uh, you know substance abuse or they simply don't have the kind of resources they've lost their home and they can't find gainful employment and so they're not fee adequately feeding or housing their children frequently those are kinds of issues that we can help address with um, access to resources, with getting them uh, employment training, with getting them hooked up with housing so that children don't have to come into the child welfare system. So those kinds of prevention, but also violence prevention. Certainly if we know that, um, you know, there's a domestic violence situation in a family, making sure that um, um, typically it's it's mom can, can safely get to a place where her children can be safe. Um, so it, it, it's a whole range of things. And right now there is a, an intensive opioid and heroin epidemic in this country that is driving children into care at uncanny rates. So making sure that we have evidence-based practice, evidence -based practices in place that parents can get access to so that they can work on those substance abuse issues. So children are not born addicted to substances. So children don't see their families die in front of them. So they don't ultimately go into care because their parents can't take care of them when their their main job during the day is 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 feeding their habit. So that's you know those are just some examples of how we can prevent children from coming into care. Uh, I was going to ask you about the opioid crisis later, but you brought it up. So um, what 
I mean, in terms of how much that has increased the number of children in foster care, is there a number or a percentage that we can can look at to see just how how awful it's gotten? Yeah, this was the first time the new numbers just came out from the Children's Bureau, um, the the Department of Health and Human Services, um, that saw a tick down in children going into foster care. But prior to that, for about five or six years, there had been almost a 10% increase in children going into foster care that was directly attributed, I think, to the uh, substance abuse issues. And in some states, that's the national. So in some states like Ohio, which is number two, Mm -hmm. which is our home state, number two uh, in in the nation of the numbers of families who are suffering from uh, substance abuse and was seeing double-digit increases in children going into foster care. So although we've seen a a dive a little bit um, nationally, I think a number of states are not yet seeing that reduction of children going into care. Yeah. Um, And so when it comes to the foster care system, if you're just a regular person on the street, you just hear so much negativity about it. You'll sometimes even hear people saying, well, a child is better enough not even being born if they're going to end up in foster care. Um, So I guess I'd ask, what is your reaction to that? Because I mean, there is, obviously, there's some rough things going on in in there. But, um, but I think there's maybe also some misperceptions. What, What would you say to someone who has a very negative view of the foster care system? So the foster care system was set up as a safety net for families, first of all. It was never intended to be um, that the government becomes parents of children, that children linger in care for years, that they move frequently. <clears throat> and so um, in the best of circumstances, foster care does just that. It provides a safety net so that resources can surround a family, so that child can go home. That's where they belong. What we've done more of over the past decade, and particularly over the past four or five years is encouraging extended family members, kin, to be a part of that process and providing the financial resources that they need to raise children that aren't necessarily their biological children, but are part of their extended family. So there's a a great movement afoot of of enveloping family members in the foster care system as well. Grandparents were raising um, grandchildren, um, uh, you know, aunts and uncles raising uh, sisters and brothers raising um, younger sisters and brothers. And that's great as long as we provide them the resources to do that job well. But I think in the best of circumstances, what it does is it allows a family maybe to take a breath, to get the resources that they need, to to um, learn better parenting skills, perhaps, um, uh, and and to come back a stronger family. That's the best intent of the foster care system. And when it works well, that's what it does. Um, you know, it's a complex system between the child welfare system and the court system um, and, and the social service system and all those other systems that weave in and out of this on behalf of children, the education system, the health care system. So I think when people think negative thoughts about the child welfare system, what they're probably seeing is one of those stories where the system failed, and it does too often fail children or families, but we tend not to see when it really does help so many children simply go back home to a safer, stronger family. Yeah. Well, you talked about how your foundation is really invested in kids that are older in foster care, which I know is a is a really huge need. And I've seen the statistics, and maybe you can tell us a few of them about, you know, kids that age out of the foster care system are much more likely to become addicted to drugs and homeless and all of these things. So talk to me about um, why you guys focus on that demographic and why it's so important. 
Yeah, we began to look at this, um, you know, back in 2001, 2002, 2003, and we were doing great public awareness campaigns, elevating the conversation about children in foster care who have been freed for adoption and can't go back home. But what we weren't doing very well is making sure that, um, you know, at the end of the day, our mission says dramatically increase the adoptions of children out of North America's foster care system. Behind that word dramatic is something measurable. And at the end of the day, we couldn't measure if we were having that kind of impact. But we also began to see this trend in statistics that exists to today that, you know, nearly 20,000 children every year who have been freed for adoption. So our job as adults in the child welfare system is to find them an adoptive home as quickly as possible. And yet 20,000 children, you know, in and around that number year over year over year turned 18 or 21 and left the system without a family. And so I think the public's first response is, well, you know, they're adults. They'll be fine on their own. I did this at 18, or I've seen this story of a, you know, an 18-year-old who became the CEO of a major corporation and he didn't have family. But the reality is there, there's a lot of research shows that because these children at age 18, which is really young to, to navigate a complex society, um, that there are, there are simply Um, there's a higher risk of negative outcomes for these children. More than one in five will be homeless um, after the age of 18 when they age out of care without a family. Only about 58% will graduate high school by age 19. And that's compared to 87% of all 19-year-olds. So those kids who age out of care. 71% of young women will become pregnant by 21. That's not negative in and of itself, but if they're a single person, if if they they don't have that that structure of family and support around them, it becomes very um, concerning for that child and for that young woman. Um, And so on and on and on. Um, There's much higher risk of involvement in systems, in substance abuse, in, in criminal justice, not because they're bad kids, because they're not allowed to make a mistake, because, it, you know, they're just one hair away from homelessness or unemployment or not being educated. So we began to focus on that that target population of children that no one else seemed to be doing, because when we, we did a scan of organizations and said, you know, why are children aging out of your care um, when your job was to find them a family. And what we heard was not surprising that they had neither the financial nor the human resources, nor the, nor the practices to focus on these children and find them families. So we said, you know, this is where we need to be. And, and by older children, research shows that the day a child turns nine in foster care and they've been freed for adoption, their likelihood of being adopted decreases significantly. So we have children from, you know, age nine to 18 um, sibling groups. We know that families back up a little bit when they hear that, oh, this child has two siblings or families back up a little bit when they hear this child has special needs or they back up from considering adoption from foster care when they hear, you know, this child has been in and out of care for years. They were in the juvenile detention center for a minute. Um, You know, they probably don't want to be adopted. And quite honestly, that child um, um, actually pushes back because they've been so mistreated and so abandoned so many times. So that's where we began to look at what are existing best practices? How can we jump into this space and do a better job for these children? 
First of all, because it's our moral responsibility to do so. But second of all, what we know is those negative consequences have um, community financial implications up to about $8 billion a year of what we spend on the negative outcomes when we could prevent those for that child and youth at the front end. So what are some of the things that you guys have done that you're seeing is working? So we created what we know is now an evidence-based program called child-focused recruitment that says rather than, and what we had defaulted to and still use in this country quite a bit, are public displays of children, right? If a child is freed for adoption, we post them on a website. We, um, we um, put them on, um, uh, you know, some sort of a Wednesday's child program in our heart gallery and, and, and hope that charismatically the public will see these children say, you know, that looks like someone I could consider adopting and then follow through with adopting. For some children, and particularly younger children, that may work. But for our target population of children, it frequently doesn't work. And in fact, has, again, another negative consequence on that child who does share their story on television, and then no one steps forward mm-hmm. to adopt. And so we simply reinforce that to that child who may be thinking, well, I'm not good enough for a family. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm just not enough. We wanted to take that risk out of that. And so we created a program that really just uses good social work um, and said, as a grant-making organization, we'll fund organizations, large or small, public or private, to hire a full-time adoption professional who will take a small caseload of these longest waiting children and use this model we've created to see if we get more of these older youth sibling groups, children with special needs adopted. We started that with seven pilot sites in 2004 and have since grown um, to now supporting more than um, 400 um, child-focused adoption recruiters across the nation who are focused exclusively on this. Key to it, though, is we also implemented a five-year Um, independent randomized control trial evaluation comparing this program. And we call it Wendy's Wonderful Kids because one of our best philanthropic partners, um, Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, was created by Dave Thomas, the founder of Wendy's. The Wendy's system remains an incredible philanthropic partner in this process. And they jumped in and and, um, really used the restaurants to generate funds to support this program. So we called it Wendy's Wonderful Kids. But what we found is after five years of a rigorous evaluation that children served by the Wendy's Wonderful Kids model were on average about one and a half times more likely to be adopted. Mm. But what may seem counterintuitive to all of us is the older a child is when served by this program, the more likely they are to be adopted, up to three times or 300% more likely to be adopted than any other business as usual. So that put us on the path of saying we've got to embed and scale this program in all 50 states and the District of Columbia so that we can increasingly move those children most at risk of aging out of foster care, of suffering from those negative consequences. It's our job to get them into safe and loving families, and we can do that through the Wendy's Wonderful Kids program. So for these people that are taking on these caseloads, what, who are they talking to? I mean, who are the families that are making the difference, you know, that maybe before this was happening, they weren't adopting, but now they're realizing that this actually will work for their family. Can you speak to anything about that? Absolutely. So part of the model is do a deep dive into this child's case file. Spend some time doing just intensive research on who has this child been in contact with? They've been in care for four or five or six years. There are a lot of adults who have surrounded this child from former foster parents to teachers and coaches, best friends, families. 
But in addition to that, there is still extended family who may be safe for this child, who inevitably are very safe for this child if they had realized that this child is available for adoption. So that's what they do first is sort of a, an intensive due diligence to find extended family members, a deep dive into the case file to find natural alliances with this child. And then part of their job is on a regular basis at a minimum monthly to have direct contact with the child. So develop a relationship with the child. If it's a 15 or a 16 year old or a 10 year old, they'll tell you who's important in their life. And then this recruiter can do that work of going, reaching out to these potential adoptive resources and finding someone for a child. And so, um, you know, a, a lot of times, more often than not, it is an extended family member, someone known to the child, a former foster parent, a current foster parent who just needs a little bit of a nudge to say, this child's been with you for six years. Would you consider adopting? They simply may never have been asked or not connected to the kind of resources that they would need to, to help raise this child beyond 18. So that's that's the job of the Wendy's Wonderful Kids Recruiter. We're finding great success with that. We're, we're near, nearing 10,000 adoptions, and the average age of a child served and adopted through Wendy's Wonderful Kids is about 13. Um, 62% of the children we're currently serving are in sibling groups. Um, 82% have at least one special need identified, but these are the children we're finding homes for who would have otherwise aged out of care. That's amazing. I am so happy to hear that. Uh, That reminds me. um, So are you familiar with an organization? It's called um, DCFYI, um, Youth and Family Foundation in Washington, D.C.? Hmm, no. Um, well, so that I used to live there, and I was involved with their organization. And their their prime, I mean, their main purpose is is specifically to provide mentors to older children in foster care, so ages like twelve and over, I think. Great. And so when I moved to Indiana, I was like, I need to get involved in something like that. And I realized that there was nothing here that was specifically yeah. for foster kids. And so currently, I do uh, big brothers, big sisters, because I wanted to, you know, be a mentor or help a child in some way. Um, but I, I'm feeling like there's not a lot of things like DCFYI, which, which would put more people in direct contact with yeah. older kids and then provide more opportunities, like exactly what you're talking about. Do you know if those are common or not? I think it depends on the state, depends on the agency. A lot of um, public agencies, like here in Franklin County, Columbus, Ohio, the Franklin County Children's Services has a mentor program for older youth in care. So I think they may not be as robust as the DCFYI or as visible, but I think some of those programs are embedded in agencies. There's not enough. Look, we all need mentors, right? Whether we're we're 50 or, or 15, we all need someone or a group of someone that we can go to for advice, for for support, for unconditional um, uh, uh, surrounding of, of, of care and concern. So absolutely, I think there's not enough, and there's probably not a coordinated enough of a coordinated effort to provide um, these children, not only with families, but with mentors. But you're right. Frequently, those mentors could turn into an adoptive resource for those children. Yeah, I'm just thinking because so many times people are scared away from foster care, they hear horror stories, but it's like kind of, if you have that, um, connection or that, just like that, uh, you know, opportunity to hang out and just kind of meet a few kids, like you start to realize that you don't really need to be afraid. And I think it provide more opportunities. So I'm, I'm always pushing that organization because I just think they're doing such important work. 
That's great. We'll learn more about them. And, and you know, every few years we do a, a snapshot of Americans' attitudes toward foster care and adoption. And, and we're finding an increased interest in Americans and learning more about foster care and adoption. But one data point that always still kind of punches me in the gut, although it's decreased over the past few years, 46% of Americans still believe that children are in care because they've done something wrong, Mm -hmm. because they are juvenile delinquents. And so until we leap over that notion of these children are in care through no fault of their own, do, do, do older youth tend to act out and act up? Absolutely. But when we look at the layers of trauma that they've experienced and the lack of trust, perhaps, that they have in adults, that's a reasonable response. But they didn't come into care because they did something wrong. So I think that's one of those things that we're working really hard, both through the Wendy's Wonderful Kids program and our continuing awareness efforts to dispel those myths about the children in foster care that just seem to linger to this day. Yeah. So I read a quote on your website from Dave Thomas who said, these children are not someone else's responsibility. They're our responsibility. And so in that, you know, obviously not everyone can or will foster. I mean, that's just the reality. And most people won't, unfortunately. But how do you see how every family or every person could in some way be helping or contributing, whether it be respite care or, or some other way? Absolutely. You know, so many um, communities and and typically through the faith-based community um, have opportunities to surround a family that is fostering or is adopting so that may, you know, if a a family is stepping forward to adopt a sibling group of three, um, the the congregation can step in and help with meals or respite or exactly what you said. But it doesn't have to be exclusively within the faith-based community. It could be within a community uh, engagement activity or in a workplace, you know, um, where do we spend most of our time during the day is with with our our fellow employees and setting up um, information centers or support groups for families who are fostering or adopting um, to do that same kind of thing. Really just learning about the cause and, 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 you know, we're moving into for better or for worse election season, asking candidates, whether it's a, a city council person or a presidential candidate, asking what is your position on how we support our most vulnerable children, you know, becoming simply a vocal advocate for these children, mm-hmm. um, helping at holiday time or, and, or, or during, you know, at the beginning of school year, most agencies, um, public agencies and private agencies have ways to help families, whether it's a, a coat drive or a gift drive or a, a meal drive. So just finding maybe those simple steps in, to feel good about helping a family, but but through that engagement, getting to know the organization a little bit better. That yeah, it might it might feel a little complex or or, or difficult to to think about going through classes to foster. But I could help children in this other simpler way and, and get just get my feet wet. Yeah. Um, certainly, um, you know, any employer can offer adoption benefits in the workplace, foster and adoption benefits, either paid or unpaid leave, depending on you know what the budget allows for families who are stepping forward to foster or adopt. So even at an, an employer level, there's much more that we can do as well. All right. That's awesome. I 
I do think sometimes people just feel like they don't even know what they could do outside of directly fostering. So I, I, that's a big message I want to get out there. So thank you yes. so much for that. Now, we, we kind of touched on how this is related to Wendy's The Restaurant, but not much. So uh, I would love if you could just give me a little history on that. Like, why is this related to Wendy's? What is Dave Thomas's um, connection to adoption? Sure. Dave Thomas, um, who is the founder of the, this incredible Wendy's brand, was adopted. Um, and he was adopted as an infant, spent a few days in foster care. But what people don't know beyond that story, so there's that personal connection quickly, is just simply he was adopted. But his adoptive mother passed away when he was relatively young. His father was father was an itinerant worker, so moved around frequently. And it was his grandmother that cared for him um, throughout his his life um, when his when his father was on the road. And in fact, he left home at age 16 and just decided to strike it on his own. And at that point, you know, moved forward and he wanted to create the best hamburger business ever. And, and he did. But what that story speaks to and where he uniquely identified is exactly where we're focused today. That's that's almost the same journey of our older youth in care. Right. Um, they may be raised by a grandparent. They're they're out on their own at 16 or 17 or 18. Um, they're having to fend for themselves. Um, and so he created the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption to focus exclusively on um, this, the foster care system and children in foster care waiting to be adopted and wanted to narrow that focus from all adoptions, international and, and, and domestic infant, to just the foster care system. Because when he created the foundation in 1992, this was not a robust conversation with Americans. This was not something that people thought about other than perhaps in the, in the misperception realm, or they had been a part of it as foster and adoptive parents, but there wasn't a conversation around what they were experiencing. So began the foundation in 1992, mostly as an awareness organization. How do we elevate this conversation? And um, for a, a number of years, we did that very well. Public service announcements with Mr. Thomas. He was a great celebrity at that stage. And so the public service announcements helped heighten awareness. He went to Congress and worked with presidents across borders um, and congressional representatives and senators to, to think about um, what are the best policies for children. He's the one that launched the Adoption Friendly Workplace Campaign um, to encourage employers to provide adoption benefits in the workplace. And then we began a, 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 a show on CBS, A Home for the Holidays, that exists today. It's the 23rd year, I think, this year um, that um, highlights foster care adoption, kind of grabs you with celebrities, but uh, highlights successful stories of foster care adoption. The foundation was lead founder and funder of the National Adoption Day Initiative, the Saturday before Thanksgiving, a day to celebrate adoption. So a lot of those awareness activities uh, were an outcome of that, the, the uh, early Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. But like we talked about before, it was really around 2001, 2002, when we began to focus on how can we make our grant making more impactful? How can we make sure that we drive this target population of children into adoptive homes? Uh, did he do, did he foster children himself? He did not. And I think a lot of times people think Wendy, his daughter, for uh, after whom the, the uh, uh, business is named, it was adopted. And, mm -hmm. and she loves dispelling that um, with, with humor. But um, they did not foster or adopt, I think, because th there was so much effort in the business. And in fact, the family remains in as Wendy's franchisees today, mm -hmm. um, but, but was uniquely, uniquely tied into doing whatever they could. The F Thomas family members are on our board of trustees. Um, they're great supporters through their franchise uh, system. So um, they, they've stayed uniquely involved in ways that we are so grateful. 
Yeah, I think that's also, I mean, it's a great example also of how even if you cannot uh, foster that there's a lot of other things you can do in terms of advocacy and and, and a lot of the things that you already mentioned. Um, is there anyone for you, um, whether it be, do you see like a particular politician or leader, someone speaking out, is there anyone that you see doing a great job outside of the Thomas family um, or that you would, uh, you know, press people to kind of look to as someone who's leading the way in a, in a positive way? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, there's so many good organizations um, that um, certainly um, um, children's rights out of out of New York City is really looking at how do we respond to systems that are failing children so miserably that that children just aren't being served in the way that that they should be. And so they really look at how do we how do we force states to do a better job on behalf of children. And so many good outcomes have come from that. It's a little contentious at the front end, but states do step two once, once the, you know, the highlight is on them and, and the, the bad job that they were doing. So I'm so proud of um, um, the, that group and, and they've had a leadership change recently, but they're really upping their game on that. Certainly, you know, Marion Wright Edelman has always been one of my heroes. Um, she was early on um, looking at how do we, how do we treat our children, not just in, in the child welfare system, but in the education, in the healthcare system. How do we, how do we make sure that every child has every opportunity for a thriving um, um, life? And, and she's been doing it for decades and continues with a strong voice to um, uh, really elevate this conversation about the rights of children and, and what children deserve. Um, there's certainly, uh, you know, a lot of um, you know, right here in Columbus, Ohio, our mayor, um, Mayor Ginther, uh, his family, as he grew up, his family fostered, I think I heard him say the other day, nearly 30 children as he was growing up. And so when you see he's uniquely invested in in this notion of how do we make sure that this community is safe? And then our governor, and this has been across governors, but right now Governor DeWine um, has, has the, the day he was elected, um, uh, made declarations about child welfare. He has committed significant more funds to um, uh, both the Wendy's Wonderful Kids program in Ohio, but lots of other initiatives across the board. So I think we see pop-ups. The state of Oklahoma is doing incredible work on behalf of children. And they were one of those states that were under uh, federal oversight, still under federal oversight, but they've really come around and the leadership is phenomenal. The state of Michigan new leadership is really looking at how do we do a better job by children. So there is a lot of hope in this landscape that can look despairing to many. Um, but I think uh, uh, up and coming leadership really understands both the moral responsibility and the fiscal responsibility of doing better by our children and youth. And are there any books or resources that you direct people to? Oh, that's a great question. I so, sorry, I should have prepared you for that one. <laughs> You know, I just read one. It has it, well it has a little bit to do with child welfare, but uh, Just Mercies um, about mm, so the good. incarceration of typically African American youth, the the wrong incarceration of African American youth. And there's going to be a movie coming out on that um, major motion picture movie in in the next, I think, few months. It's just really highlighting how do we treat our our citizens, our fellow citizens? How do we get over our myths and misperceptions and and discrepancies of how we treat humans in our communities? Um, that one was an eye-opener for me. Uh, yeah, I actually forgot that that movie was coming out, but I'm really excited about it. Absolutely love that book. Heard 
Brian Stevenson on Oprah's podcast yeah. and, and you know, just everybody absolutely loves it. And I think everybody needs to read it. Well, Rita, thank you so much. I think that what you guys are doing is like literally the most important work right now in our oh, country. Like you. it's just, I don't know, like it's just so important and I want as many people to know about it as possible. So I just really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I'm going to try to get this out there and uh, make sure that people know um, what you guys are doing and that this work that you're doing with older youth I want to make sure that gets out there. I mean, because I think that is what we're not hearing about. So it is. It's so important. And 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 if we just think of ourselves at 15, 16, 17, and although intellectually we may have thought we were ready, we're never ready to live without a family. I don't care how old we are. So just pushing the notion that family is forever. Family is what makes a safe and sound community. Um, and so, you know, we're all in and we so appreciate your attention on this as well. Thank you. Well, thanks for listening to today's episode, everyone. I hope you take to heart what Rita said. Go check out the Dave Thomas Foundation and figure out how you can play a part in helping these kids. Have a great day and I'll see you next time. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan Podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.